took this picture. I took this picture this week. It's hard to get a picture when it's curved around a sign, but it's called Conversations on Love. There's a number of different departments on campus that are hosting these conversations on love. So you have different different departments like philosophy, science, religion are exploring what love is, and I think it's just it's a great idea. So you have some people here who might twist your arm to get you to go to some of these. I, I think, you know, it's an interesting idea. It's a great idea that these particular fields are wrestling with and attempting to understand and define love. It's a noble effort. And we believe in love. We are moved by love. Uh, when we witness it, we're blessed by love and strengthened by it when we are recipients of it. But still, as these campus talks suggest, you know, love is hard to define. It's a challenge, and defining love is, is not only challenging when you, when you present it to a bunch of departments and they look at it from different angles, but it's also challenging when you turn to the dictionary. So I did this, and when I looked, one dictionary that I looked at up online, it had 36 different definitions of love, or nuanced definitions. So some of them, these are just a, a, a sampling. You know, love as, you know, enduring lifelong devotion, like, like a couple who've been married for 50 years or best friends who have been through it all in life. Um, or, you know, or a sibling that you've just, you know, that you're devoted to, that, that kind of love. And then there, there's love that's care and concern. Um, it's less devotion than that first example, like love for a, an acquaintance or a, maybe a neighbor, you know, care and concern. And then there, there could be love as affinity toward or interest in something, and you guys are familiar with this. This is the way we use the word a lot. So for me, I love watching Pixar movies. I love waffle fries at Chick-fil-A. I love <laughs> I love hiking up mountains. You know, you have you have an affinity toward or an interest in something. You know, love. Actually, this was the first definition that Google listed was affection or sexual attraction to somebody. They met and immediately fell in love. And then there was another one, sort of more scrolling down toward the bottom. One from the world of tennis. You know, that's right, that, <laughs> that it's used to keep score like 15 love, or love equals zero, nothing, right? Um, so my point is, is that we believe in love. I mean, we, 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 and we can't imagine life without it. It's impossible to imagine life without it. But it is challenging to define. I mean, everybody has their perspective on it. And there are a wide range of meanings, depending on the context and how we're using it. And this is really important, you know, this topic of love. It's really important because... When we hear something like, for God so loved the world, you know, the nature of that love might not be immediately clear to us. It needs to be explained and defined and illustrated. You know, does God love us like I love Pixar movies? I I really hope it's a deeper love than that. So then what is God's love like? And our text, which comes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, it gives us an unforgettable picture of what God's love for his people is like. So as you know, if you were here last week, Hosea, um, and we've been looking at the minor prophets, and Hosea is one of those minor prophets. It's a book of the Old Testament or a book of the Bible in that section of the twelve. And we learned last week that the minor prophets, they're not called minor because they're unimportant. That's often how we use the word. But they're minor in the sense that they're shorter. They're they're more compact than the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, if you're familiar with those. They're verbally efficient. Uh, We learned last week that studying the prophets will teach us very deep lessons about God's nature. What he cares about. What matters to him. And our series this spring is called Understanding the Heart of God. 
And tonight, we're going to grow in our understanding of God's heart and love for his people. So understanding God's love for his people. So three steps as we go through this tonight. First, the background of Hosea, because we're going to be in that minor prophet tonight. And then second, Hosea's initial prophetic assignment, an unforgettable one. And then third, lessons that flow out of this book, particularly his prophetic assignment. Lessons for us today from Hosea. So that first step, sketching out the background. You can go to the next slide, Robbie. Um, just for those of you who like maps, uh, this is a period of time. This is like 750 BC, so 750 years before Christ. Uh, and it's at this point, period of time that Israel has already divided into two different kingdoms. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he lives in the northern kingdom. Unlike last week, Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, but he was from the southern kingdom. Okay, so 750, and, and actually, by the way, Amos and Hosea are contemporaries. They were uh, they ministered at the same time period, there were, there, or there was definitely overlap. So, and that when you start to get into the book, I'll just gonna, just give you a quick sketch so you get a sense of Hosea's world when he was ministering to the northern kingdom of Israel. Oh, and just before we get this map out of the way, see way up there, Syria, that kingdom, the Assyrian Empire, that's going to come into play a little bit later. So, we can go to the next slide, Rob. If there was a stock market, it would be setting new highs, most likely. Business was booming. Consumer spending was up. Uh, Hosea chapter 2 mentions a lot of abundance in a variety of things. I'll just rattle off some. There's wine and oil, silver and gold, chapter, verse 8, grain and wool, verse 9, lots of feasts, chapter, verse 11, agriculture, like lots of fig production, verse 12, and expensive jewelry, verse 13. Business is good. The latest housing data report is in, and there are new large homes going up everywhere. Hosea chapter 8 makes a reference to great palaces that exist, particularly through the wealth for the wealthy in, in Israel. But there is an ever-widening gap between the rich and the poor, and you can recall this from last week from Amos, uh, Hosea's contemporary, like I said. Very few people are stepping forward to address the injustices that are going on and the systemic inequalities within this society. Hosea 12.7 calls out to business owners, these are the people with power, for abusing that power over the people and unjustly charging customers too much. Here, here it is. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, Hosea says, he loves to oppress. And then in the next verse, Hosea quotes how the merchant is insisting on his innocence. Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find any iniquity or sin in me. There's political instability. There's six kings in 23 years. It's like the leadership in Israel is like a revolving door with one king coming in and another going out. You can read about this in 2 Kings 14 through 17, but just to give you a quick idea, like a 30-second summary, just to hear the chaos of it. Um, Six months after becoming king, Zechariah is murdered. The plotter who did it, and now King Shalom, is assassinated one month later. Menahem rules for 10 years, and then he's followed by his son, Pekahiah. He rules for two years, and then he's assassinated by his own army general, Pekah. Pekah is then quickly disposed, not too long after that, and he's killed by Hosea, and he's the final king who's there when they go into Assyrian captivity. I mean, it's just political chaos and instability. And I, I will quiz you on that after this is over. 
right? So, but these kings, they're supposed to be God's anointed ones, and they're supposed to rule in the way that God would, like righteously and living for justice, but they're living for their own power, living for their own pleasure. Homeland security is becoming a major issue. Surrounding nations like Assyria, the most powerful empire in the region, they're threatening to attack. And to keep Assyria happy, certain Israel kings, like all the ones that I just mentioned, what they do is they pay tributes. And that's just a very fancy political term for a bribe, for like paying the bully on on the playground, like paying him off so that he doesn't hurt you. And so in Hosea 8.10, God voices his anger that his kings are doing this, that they're trusting more in these bribes and these tributes than in him. And he says, though they hire allies among the nations, I, the Lord, will soon gather them up, and the king and the princes shall soon rise because of their tributes. And a couple more, just to give you a sense. Worship of, of God is alive and well, but yet it is just perfunctory. It's, it's people going through the motions, just doing their duty. It's surface obedience. Their hearts are not really in it. Which prompts God to say in Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than your burnt offerings. And the priests who are overseeing this, some of the leaders in the society, the people that you would hope, up, hope would stand up for righteousness in the marketplace and would stand up for righteousness and, and sincerity in worship, they're not doing anything. They, they think all is fine. And, and that you can read about that in Hosea chapter 5. So that's the background. From one perspective, the picture looks fairly good. Right? There's economic growth for some, a measure of national security, some appearances of worship. But Hosea, as a prophet, he sees through all of that. He sees that God's people are teetering on the brink of judgment and ruin. And so Hosea wanders among the streets of Israel and he preaches things like this. Here, just you go to the next slide, Ron. You people are plowing iniquity. You're weeping injustice. You're eating the fruit of lies. You're trusting in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. And all that did happen in 722 BC when Assyria came and conquered them. And I'm just guessing with sermons like this from Hosea that he did not have a lot of Facebook friends. And whatever friends he did have, what few friends he did have, they must have been very true and loyal, devoted friends. And yet, Hosea, he faithfully preaches the words that God gives to him. Because that's what prophets are supposed to do. And the underlying hope in Hosea's ministry, and all of prophetic ministry for that matter, is that people would turn their hearts back to the Lord, that they would listen with ears that are attentive to the Lord, and they would live again according to his commands. And Hosea does this for 40 years. He calls people in these ways. He preaches faithfully. He calls people to recommit their lives to the Lord. So that's just a quick sketch of Hosea. I know some of you started reading it. Maybe some of you want to read it over the next week, but you'll see a lot of that there. And if you want to get a head start on the next prophet that we'll be looking at, it's, you can start with the book of Joel. So that's the, our first step tonight, the background. The second step is Hosea's initial prophetic assignment. Here you can turn there, Robbie. The first thing God wanted Hosea to do wasn't to preach or speak, actually. The first thing God wanted to do was he wanted him to act something out that would help communicate his message 
God's message to the people. So Hosea 1, this is the first, first two verses after the introduction. Hosea 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, the daughter of the blame. So God begins Hosea's prophetic ministry with an assignment. It's to go and to marry a promiscuous woman. And other translations have adulterer or prostitute. And, you know, prophets endure tough circumstances. And this is, that's part of their job description. Um, and this is definitely one of them. Daniel, as you know, is thrown into a lion's den. It's part of his ministry. Isaiah preaches naked for three years. Please, Lord, not give me that one. <laughs> Jeremiah, eventually in his ministry, he gets kidnapped and he, by his own people and, and absconded down to, whisked off down to Egypt. Ezekiel lays on his side for over a year in the town square and, and gives messages there. But Hosea's first assignment is very tough. God says to Hosea, your first act as my prophet is to marry somebody who will repeatedly break your heart and will not be faithful to you. And we hear this and we think, well, this is an act of just complete stupidity. Like, why would, why would you do this? And fortunately, God tells us right here in verse 3, and you've heard it, why, why he's to do this. God tells Hosea the reason why to do this a difficult thing is, quote, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so don't miss this. Hosea marries Gomer, and it's an illustration it's, it's a living parable of God's love for his people. God said this to his people in the past, and he says this to us today, in the present. Look, this marriage between Hosea and Gomer, it mirrors what I do with my people, with you. I've made a covenant with you. I've spoken my vows to you. And I've made this commitment with you in the full knowledge that you will be unfaithful to me. You'll be unfaithful to the vows that you make with me, and you will bring my heart severe anguish and pain. So it's actually not an act of complete foolishness. It's just an act of profound, unbelievable love. A love that has calculated the cost, knows it, and despite all that, considers it worthwhile to step into. And this imagery of husband and wife is used of God in all his people throughout the scriptures. I mean, Jesus uses this imagery when he teaches in parables. You know, he likens himself to a groom who will one day come back for his bride, the church. Again, the people of God are likened as a bride in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in those final chapters, the spirit and the bride say, come. The bride as the bride of Christ, the church, beckoning the coming of the new heavens and the new earth when all will be made new. Isaiah 54, so this is still some 700 years before Christ, Isaiah says, For your maker, says God, right? For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. So when we consider how God wants us to understand him, and how we're to relate to him. He tells us we ought to think of our relationship with him, at least at times, and in some measure, 
that it's a marriage relationship. Like, why does God want us to do that? So now for our third step, some of those lessons that I think come out of this of why God wants us to do that. So yeah, lessons for us today. God loves us with the love of a spouse. So God loves us as creator-creature, and, and God loves us as, as father-child, or, uh, like, but he also loves us as husband-wife, that same love that is between the bond of a husband and wife. And so take a honest look at yourself. You know, how do you view your relationship with God? I mean, is, you know, some, some that I think if we look, we'll find, like, is God an IRS agent? You know, he's somewhere out there in the distance. Maybe he'll let you get away with a little bit, but if you go too far, then he'll track you down and he'll make you pay. <laughs> or is God a laid-back parent? You know, he's there for you. He's close by. He provides. He provides for your needs, your desires, but he's fairly hands-off. He doesn't ask or require much of you. Or is God a demanding boss? You know, he's hard to satisfy. Your hard work, your effort, they're just never good enough. You never feel like it's good enough. You live in this constant state of anxiety or fear when you think about him and your relationship with him. And of course, none of those, just FYI, all those that I just mentioned, none of those are biblical. <laughs> they're not, and they're also not healthy. You know, but if we're honest, we see these in our own hearts as we, we relate to God, as we think about God, at least pieces of these images. But God is telling us tonight, like, when you think of your relationship with me, you know, I want you to realize that I love you like a spouse. So if you're in Christ, if you've put your faith in him, then yes, you're a servant of God. That's one way to conceive of your relationship with him as a servant, and you're to obey him. And that is biblical. Um, or yes, if you're a son or daughter of God, then you have access. You have the privileges of going to God as your father and being in his family. And that too is biblical. But the Bible says, God says, you're also an intimate partner in marriage in whom he delights. Isaiah 62, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So when you think about your relationship with God, do you think about him as a spouse? And I mean, Hosea is saying, if, you, if not, then you're missing out. We're missing out. So God loves us with the love of a spouse. But another lesson, you're no longer your own. When this is true, if we're to, this is how we're to conceive of our relationship with God, then this next lesson flows right out of that. You are no longer your own. You belong to another. I mean, a sort of a, a less subtle way of saying this, a more blunt way, would be kiss your independence goodbye. <laughs> See you later, independence. You know, when I was single, I think, did I mention this a couple times ago, that when I was single, I cut my own hair? Did I talk about that? No? This is all, okay. So when I was single, I cut my own hair. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. I just had these, it was like a sheep. I just, every month, I would just take the shears, and I would just go down to my skin, and I was great for the next month, you know? Yeah. People are shaking their head. But then I met Danielle, all right, I, I, Danielle and I, we, we, we came together and, and we got married. And Danielle said, it's time to let a trained professional take care of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually fought with her over this. 
but eventually I compromised. <laughs> and I realize that's a small and a funny example. I mean, like on the scale of one to ten, like one, like when you get married, like the things you need to change the least, and the ten being the things you really need to change the most, like that's like a one. Maybe like a one and a half, right? <laughs> but, you know, but like hundreds and thousands of these things come up in a marriage relationship. It's, it's a lot of it is just about two people coming together, and now you're one. It's about compromising. And this is why married couples, you have so many conversations, so many conflicts over how do you spend the money? How do you spend your time? How do you discipline your kids? And it just goes on. And in marriage, one of the inescapable truths is you are no longer your own anymore. Like you belong to another. And most couples start off excited about this, like eager to just cast off their independence and just embrace the other. But then at some point in time, you know, if, if particularly married couples, you realize this is a lot harder than I ever imagined. I, and I love Mike Mason. He wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage. Let me just read you one passage. He just captures that, that so well in this one passage. Let me just give you his image. All right. Just, it's just the difficulty of giving up independence. He says, a marriage or a marriage partner may be compared to a great tree growing right up through the center of your living room. It is something that is just there. <laughs> and it is huge, and everything has been built around it. And wherever one happens to be going, to the fridge, to the bed, to the bathroom, out the front door, the tree has to be taken into account. It cannot be gone through. It must be respectfully gone around. It is somehow bigger and stronger than oneself. True, it could be chopped down, <laughs> but not without tearing the entire house apart. And certainly, the tree is beautiful. It is unique. It is exotic. Danielle, you are beautiful, unique, and exotic. <laughs> but also, well, this is, this is Mike Mason talking, not me. Um, certainly, it is beautiful, unique, and exotic. But also, let's face it, it is at times an enormous inconvenience. <laughs> There are many things that can be said about one's life mate, but finally, irrevocably, the one definite thing that needs to be said is that he or she is always there, and that, while it may be common enough in the world of trees, it is among human beings a rather remarkable state of affairs. And that's just, it's true. It's like one is always there, and that is an enormous blessing to have somebody always there. But it is really challenging, too, because you are now no longer your own. You belong to another. So if you're a Christian and you are God's spouse, then you are no longer your own. You belong to him and he to you. And so to use Mike Mason's imagery, God is that massive tree at the center of your life. So what does God want me to do with the money that I earned this summer? You can't, you know, ignore God. Who should I date? Or who should I not date? What jokes should I tell? What joke should I laugh at? What time should I aim to go to bed or to get up? How should I think about my sexual desires? What should I do with those sexual desires? You are no longer an independent agent for any of those questions or the other 10,000 that you can think of. Your life is now entwined with God. How are you living? You know, when you think about that, how are you living? Are you living independently from him, away from him, or are you living with him? as a faithful spouse. Another lesson. The real you will be exposed. 
And when it is, when it is, be quick to humble yourself and seek forgiveness. You can't hide in marriage. The other person is going to see the real you. So with your acquaintances, you can generally put your best foot forward and hide the unattractive stuff that's in you, like your impatience, your insecurities, your jealousies. It's a little harder to hide these things with roommates or close friends. With parents and siblings, like forget about it. Everybody sees the real you. But the nice thing is, is that, you know, at the end of the day, you can go into your own room and be alone and hide. <laughs> But with a spouse in marriage, they see the real you, and then what do you do? You go into the same bed at night. You know, there's no escape. This, this is, you know, um, this is like after a long, blissful wedding day, some couples will report experiencing something, like, with their spouse that leaves them thinking, wait a second, like, who are you? Like, you're not the same person I was engaged to. Like, like, like the real you comes out over time. And good marriages develop a pattern when personal sin is exposed. When something like that comes out, like, you know, the husband or wife, you recognize it, you confess it, and then you ask for forgiveness. This is what a healthy relationship with in marriage, yes, but also with God looks like, too. Hosea 14, too. Listen to this. The, he asked, the Lord asked us to do this very same thing that you're supposed to do, not just in a marriage relationship, but in all relationships. It's just like if sin comes out, you confess it and ask for forgiveness. Take words with you, God says. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive us all our sins and receive us graciously again. So God, he sees our sin, so we don't need to try to hide it. Concealing sin is what destroys relationships, and we're to confess it, receive forgiveness, and ask for the power to change. And when a marriage is working well, you, you know the fact that you can't hide things from your spouse is a blessing because your spouse sees your weaknesses and then challenges you and encourages you and loves you to change. And again, this all mirrors our relationship with God. God knows everything about us. Everything. And so it's just foolishness to try to hide things from him or to think that we can. So always be willing to confess with him, to, to him. You know, and if a human spouse demonstrates such patience and forbearance, well, how much more will God demonstrate such patience and forbearance with us? Another one. God is jealous of our affection and loyalty because he knows that it's for our flourishing and wholeness. And this might be a scary thing for you to hear that our God is a jealous God, but we need to understand there's two kinds of jealousy. The first kind of jealousy is destructive. This is the one that we're most familiar with. You know, I want what you have and I don't like you because I don't have it. And it's very infantile. It's an attitude that expresses itself in envy or malice or spite. And it's fed by feelings of pride and entitlement. But there's a second kind of jealousy. It's actually a good jealousy. It's a constructive jealousy. It's a zeal to protect a love relationship or to repair it when it is broken. This is what we mean when we say God has a jealous love for us. Like in a good marriage, each partner is jealous for the other's affection and doesn't want the other seeking affection from a rival lover. And in God, he wants to protect the love relationship that he has with me and you. And he knows that there's lots of rivals to our affection. And one minute we're committed to him, and then the next minute, you know, we are committed to pleasures or desires or agendas, something that begins to replace God. And God is, he's jealous for us to be faithful to him just as he is faithful to us. God is the only one who can satisfy our desires, satisfy our wandering hearts. 
this is why we sing sometimes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. God is jealous for our affection because he knows that any other rival out there is completely inferior to him. There was a philosopher, some of you guys, we, we talked about this at Freshman Bible Study this week, actually, so I thought I'd just bring it up again. There's a philosopher named David Foster Wallace. He's not a Christian. Um, and he put this concept, this truth, so emphatically, he put it in a college commencement speech he gave about a decade ago. Listen to what he said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what do we worship? And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, and here it is, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life out of, then you will never have enough, never feel that you have enough. And it's the truth. Worship your body or beauty or sexual allure, and you will always feel not good enough. You will feel ugly. And then when time and age start showing and it comes for us all, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. I mean, it, it, Mr. Wallace, he understood that there are so many things out there, pleasure, money, power, achievement, recognition, and we're just jealous. And those things are jealous for our affection, and we run to them. And then God knows there's only one who is worthy of our ultimate affection. That's himself. Anything else comes, becomes the center of our lives that we look to for ultimate meaning and fulfillment. And, and, and we know that like when we don't get it, we're just devastated. Not just disappointed, but we're devastated. When we don't get it, when it doesn't happen, it's ultimately, it's, it's, it reveals that it's replaced God. And God knows that true life is not going to come from getting that thing. True life comes when he's at the center. That's why he's jealous for us, a good jealous for our affection. God longs for our obedience, our faithfulness, because he knows it will lead to our flourishing and wholeness, our shalom. Another lesson, our sin is spiritual adultery, but God remains faithful to us despite that. So how do you view sin? You know, most of us think of sin as we break God's law. Hosea shows us that sin isn't just breaking God's law. It it actually breaks his heart. So in essence, sin communicates to God that my desire for this or or that exceeds my desire to be faithful to him. And in a sense, in that sense, sin is a spiritual act of adultery against God. And Jesus Christ said this too. He said, if anybody is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark 8, 38. And Jesus isn't being too harsh when he calls that generation adulterous because he understands the heart of God, that sin is tantamount to adultery against God, spiritual adultery. So every time we sin, we're sleeping around with rivals that take God's place. But note this, God knew, going back to Hosea, right? God knew that we would be spiritual adulterers. He knew that we would sin against him and that we would continue to sin against him. He had full knowledge of that, and yet he chose to love us anyway. 
He knew we would break his heart with unfaithfulness over and over again. And yet, he still stepped up to the altar with us. When we sin against God and break our vows with him, God, he's not obligated to remain faithful to his end of the commitment anymore. It'd be perfectly just for him to take us to divorce court and to say, enough, our relationship is over. But God does not do that with us. And this is the final lesson. God proves his love for us by paying the costly price to make a way back to himself. Listen to, this is another moment in Hosea's life. And just listen to this. This is just so eye-opening. And it just points to the cross. Listen to another, this, this critical moment. It's from Hosea uh, chapter 3. Um, later on in his marital life. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go and show love to your wife, Gomer, again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Actually, yeah, thank you. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I, Hosea, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lefek of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any other man, and I will live with you. So Gomer, the adulterous wife, leaves Hosea, the faithful husband, she prostitutes herself once again to another and presumably now belongs to some, something like a pimp because she has, to, she has to be bought out of that slavery. Gomer just can't leave. Hosea has to buy her back. And Hosea buys her back at a costly price. It's a, it's a significant amount of silver. And then a homer and a left deck of barley, which is about a half a year's worth of food. And Hosea charges his bride, Gomer, be faithful to me once again. And so, like Hosea, God is absolutely committed to getting his bride, his unfaithful people, back. And when his bride wanders and strays from him, he will do what it takes to bring her back, even if it means paying a costly price. And the Bible tells us, I know I started with this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This doesn't mean that God was overcome with warm feelings toward us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God sees our sin and it grieves him. It causes him pain, just as a spouse feels with an adulterous um, spouse. But God made a choice. and he, He chooses to bring us back, even at great cost to himself, even sacrificing his own son. So the same call that goes out, that went out to Hosea and his, his contemporaries, this same call goes out to every one of us tonight to return to the Lord. So if you're holding on to things that you shouldn't, give them up. If they're rivals for affection for God and they're replacing him, give them up. Return to him. If you've wandered to places that you've led, that have led you away from God, will turn around and come back. If you've never surrendered your heart and your life to the Lord, but you feel convicted by your own sin, you feel that tonight, and you're overwhelmed by his love, that this kind of unimaginable love, then turn to him and surrender to him and say, I do. Speak vows back to him. Turn to the Lord. So wherever you are now, once you do return to the Lord, Be faithful to him.
And this, this call of being faithful to him will be a lifelong struggle for all of us. But you know what will greatly help you in your struggle to be faithful. Like understanding God's love and his heart for his people. When we see the nature of God's love for us, evidenced here, lived out by this parabolic act. And it's a jealous love. A jealous love that wants our best. And it's a costly love that will do whatever it takes to get us back. When you begin to see that, and then hopefully you begin to think, why do I need to look anywhere else? Why would I want to go anywhere else? Where, where can I find anybody else who will love me this deeply, this powerfully, this personally? So may the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ change us and transform us to live faithfully.